You are listening to audio from the Mariner campus of CA Church, located in Coquitlam, British Columbia. We hope this message helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus. Good morning. It's good to see you this morning. If, uh, if we haven't had a chance to meet before, my name's Sam. I serve as one of the pastors here, and this is Rob. Rob is going to be reading our teaching text for us this morning. Oh, a round of applause. Okay. That's your community group over there, isn't it? So good. Um, Rob's going to be reading our teaching text. If you have a Bible, would you turn um, with us to the book of Genesis chapter 13? Genesis 13. And uh, while you're turning there, I'll just mention that uh, Rob actually serves as one of our elders um, on the elders board. And uh, I don't talk about this too, too often, but we have incredible elders at this church. I don't know if you're aware of that because they're often serving in the background. But, um, but I'm so, so incredibly grateful for the men and women who serve on that team. And uh, if you talk to any leadership expert, they'll tell you that the strength of a church really rests on the strength of the elders and the leaders of the church. And so, so thankful for the, the quality men and women who sit around that table. Rob specifically brings some leadership to our finances. And uh, so thankful for what you do. Okay. Hopefully that gave you time to, to find Genesis chapter 13. Would you stand to your feet for the reading of God's word? Reading from Genesis uh, chapter 3, starting at verse 2. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold. And he journeyed from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made the altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, I will go to the right, or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes, and he saw the Jordan Valley as well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zor. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities in the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land that you see I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring can also be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Awesome. Thanks, Rob. You can take a seat. Cool. Well, before we get started this morning, I uh, actually just want to take a moment to pray. As was just read in our teaching text by Rob, uh, the text this morning is all about conflict that takes place on a piece of land, a land in the Middle East that is now populated by two different people groups, Israel and Palestine. 
And some 4,000 years later, I'm sure you know there's still intense conflict, that's a war that's happening on that same land. We chose this series months and months ago before there was ever word of, of, a, of a war that was breaking out, but it's such interesting timing that we're studying Abraham and these roots at this, at this time in history. And so I, I want to take a moment to pray together as a church family. I, I recognize that in this room, there's probably so many different opinions on what is happening right now. There's so much that's being said on social media on both sides of the war, and it can be so confusing and so disorienting. But as Christians, there are some things that, that we can say with absolute certainty. What's happening in Israel and in Gaza, it breaks the heart of God. The killing of innocent victims, the rape and murder of women and children, the bombing of hospitals, it is evil. It is demonic, and it must stop. And so we want to pray that God would break into this situation and do what only he can do. That he would intervene. That he would bring peace in the midst of a horrific and desperate situation. Amen? So let's just take a moment together and pray on the onset this morning. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we come before you today in regards to the war that's happening in the Middle East. And we ask boldly today that you would resolve the conflict that you'd end the war and that you would bring about perfect peace. We lift up, lift up to you this morning those who are mourning the loss of loved ones. We mourn with them today. We pray for healing and for comfort, that it would cover all of them. Jesus, you came to be a blessing to all nations. You came to bring about peace for both the Jew and the Gentile. And so we pray today, Lord Jesus, that you would bring about restoration in both Israel and Palestine that you would give great wisdom to those in leadership, and that they would find a way to navigate their differences and chart a new path forward that aligns with your heart. Jesus, we also pray that you would come quickly and that you would put an end to the war and death and destruction and sadness that is, that is all around us and that you would usher in your soon and coming kingdom that you promised. Come, Lord Jesus, come. It's in your name we pray. Amen. 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 Okay, well, as we get started this morning, I, uh, I, I just want to make a note that I'm indebted to some incredible different scholars and thought leaders who've done a lot of thinking and work around this text. Specifically, there's a guy named Tim Mackey, Bruce Waltke, Ian Proven, but most importantly, my teacher and, uh, and, and a mentor, Daryl Johnson, whose work on this text really shaped so much of what I'm going to be sharing with you today as we continue in this series on Abraham. Last week, Pastor David looked at Genesis chapter 12, and, and we saw in, in Genesis chapter 12, we really saw the humanness of Abraham. He came up, up against all sorts of different crises, and what we saw in, in Abraham in, in, in that section of the text was failure after failure after failure as he responded to the crisis. He was, he was disobedient to God in several different situations. He lied to Pharaoh the king. He, he gave up his wife in order to spare his own life. He, he, and God rescued him. He continued to bail him out. But Abraham's track record at this point in the story is not looking good. You know, if you ever thought that Abraham was this, this perfect, heroic figure, then last week's text proved that he's not. He is a human just like you or like me. And then we come to chapter 13. The text that was just read a moment ago, and we see Abraham again encounter some crisis. He's in conflict with his nephew Lot, but this time his response to the conflict is quite different. 
In chapter 13, we see this powerful illustration of what Martin Luther describes when he describes faith. He says, faith is the act of throwing yourself on God. And that's what we see Abraham do right here in our text. He throws himself on God. He entrusts himself fully, completely to God, letting go of everything. And in a moment, I want to look at the specifics of of, of how I think we see such faith in Abraham. But before we get there, let's just refresh ourselves on why exactly, how we got to this place in the story. There's this big conflict that has come up between Abraham's men and his nephew Lot's men. Essentially, because there's not enough fields for both of them to coexist together, for their animals, their livestock, and all the rest of it. And so there's this conflict that's brewing between those two groups. And I think it's important for for us to remember why Abraham finds himself in this position at all. Why are his men fighting with Lot's men and unable to, to, to live together in that land? How did we get here? Well, this current crisis that Abraham finds himself in, is, it's a decision that he, it, it's, the, it's the consequence of a decision that he made years before. It's the consequence of a decision he made not to throw himself on God, but to throw himself on himself. See, if you remember in the story, God was super clear with Abraham back in chapter 12. He said, leave your country and your people and your father's house and go to this new land that I'm going to show you. And Abraham and Sarah, they did leave their country. They did leave their people, and they left most of their father's house, but they took along their nephew Lot. And it's not super clear within our text as to why he decided to bring Lot along with him, but something to consider is that back in those days, having kids was literally everything. Having kids was your retirement plan. Having kids was your legacy. So it's likely that Abraham brought along Lot almost as a bit of a backup plan maybe as an insurance strategy, just in case God didn't come through for him. Like, just in case, well, at least he and Sarah would have Lot there, someone to take care of them in their old age. The problem Abraham finds himself in in our text, Lot's men fighting with his men, it's a direct result. It's the consequence of that decision, his disobedience to God, bringing Lot along. It's a crisis that was birthed out of his desire to trust himself rather than to just trust in God. But I want you to see how Abraham responds in this crisis. Because it's actually a, a lot different than what we saw in his responses back in chapter 12. It's different than the way that he responded to the famine. It's different than the way that he responded to Pharaoh in Egypt. How did Abraham deal with this conflict with Lot? Well, he finally let go by letting go of everything except God. Abraham let go. Now, I have a, a bit of a tradition going of sharing embarrassing stories about myself up here on the stage. So I thought I'd continue that this morning. Is that okay? Back in spring of 2009, I, uh, I took a trip to Thailand. It was a missions trip. I was there for a month with a group of college students. And it was a really wonderful trip, wonderful time. One of the cities that we went to had a canal that went all along the outside of it. And apparently that canal, the water in there, was a mix of regular water and sewage that kind of flowed out from the city. And on that canal, they had like a water taxi. It wasn't a water taxi like we have in Vancouver. It was more like a raft with an engine on it. And you'd have, you'd pile 20 or 30 people onto the raft. And so we took that to get from point A to point B on our trip. And so, so we got on the raft, and, and, uh, and as we were on it, I was seeing what was happening at the various stops. Like, they would stop for a moment, and you would file off as quickly as you could. But whether you were off or not, that thing was moving. And so they were going. And as I was watching this happen, I was getting more and more nervous about my stop, which was coming off, and how that was going to happen, and all of that. And so time got closer and closer. We eventually got to our stop. 
And uh, there was a group of 11 or 12 of us who were on the trip. And somehow I got at the very back of the line. And so the, the team is filing off. And I'm like, go, 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 get off, get off, get off, get off. And so the team is, they're, they're filing off, filing off. And by the time it was finally my turn, the, the, the boat was pulling away from the shore. And I felt like in that moment, my life was flashing before my eyes. I was even thinking about like what my life might look like if I got stuck in Thailand. Because here's the thing, I am horrible at directions, okay? So if I didn't get off with the rest of the group, there was a small, small chance I was ever gonna find my friends again. And these stops weren't labeled, at least not in English. And so all these things, I was picturing what my life might look like. Maybe I would marry a Thai woman and start a family here. I didn't know what it was all gonna look like, but, uh, but in those moments, as, as all my friends were in the, in the, in the, the boat was pulling away from the shore, I decided I needed to make the jump. And so I, I got to the back of the boat, and I was actually a little heavier than I even am right now at that time. So I got to the back of my, the boat, and I ran as fast as I could to the edge, and as I got mid-air, my pants split. From my crotch, literally down to my foot, my whole leg exposed, and there was a group of, I don't know, 30 or 50 Thai women and other tourists who were just pointing and laughing at me. I had to make a decision in that moment. Was I going to jump off? <laughs> was I going to jump off? Was I going to let go? And it was letting go of the boat and my solid footing on there. It was letting go of my dignity in a lot of cases and, and, and jump back onto dry land. This idea of letting go, that was a loose connection, I know. But I wanted to share the story. This, this idea of, of letting go is, is so key to understanding this text in Genesis chapter 13, where we find this picture of Abraham throwing himself on God, jumping off the edge of the pool, so to speak, doing this trust fall into the arms of God. So let's take a little bit of a closer look at, at Abraham and, and how he let go. The first thing that we see, the first area of Abraham's life that we see him letting go is we see him letting go of his rights. Look at verse 8 of our text again. It says, Then Abraham said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. It's not the whole, it's not the whole land before you. Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, I will go to the right. Or if you take the right, I'll, I'll, I'll go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw the Jordan Valley was, was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zor. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Okay, in these verses, we see Abraham letting go of his rights. Because see, Abraham, he was the elder in this situation. He was the head of the clan, and, and he had every right to make the decision as to who was going to go where, about what land he wanted to have and what land Lot should have. Everything within that ancient culture pointed to the fact that Abraham should be the one to choose. And even if Abraham said to Lot, like, no, 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 you know what? You choose Lot. Lot should have insisted that Abraham take the best piece of land, or at least pretended to fight him on it. Like when I go out for dinner with my father-in-law, and he pulls out his wallet, and I'm like, no, 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 put your wallet away, but really I'm hoping that he's going to pay. <laughs> Lot should have at least gestured for Abraham to choose, but he doesn't. We see Abraham letting go of all of it, letting go of his rights. Daryl Johnson points out that the Bible, it doesn't actually even have a concept for rights, for personal rights. The idea of rights in Scripture is actually a term called righteousness. And we talked about this a lot when we were going through the Beatitudes back in the spring. We said that righteousness is actually best understood as right-relatedness. 
to be in right relationship with God and to be in right relationship with the people around us. And so, so what we see happening here is Abraham letting go of all of his rights for the sake of righteousness, for the sake of right relatedness with both God and with his nephew Lot. And this is why Abraham is able to make peace, why he can make peace with Lot in the midst of such conflict, because he's laid down his rights. Jesus taught that we are most in sync with God when we make peace. He says, blessed are the peacemakers. And notice it's not just those who keep peace, but blessed are those who make it by laying down their sense of rights and, and, and what they deserve and rolling all of that onto God by simply letting go. You know, speaking of the Beatitudes, I think in the life of Abraham, in this section of the story, we, we actually see him also exercise such meekness. And to be clear, meekness is not weakness. I think that's important to say because sometimes I think we can, we, when somebody turns the other cheek or when someone refuses to engage in that fight for their rights or, or, or gives someone something that they don't deserve, I think sometimes that can be perceived as weak. Well, he just didn't want to fight. He just, he just didn't want to stand up for himself. But I don't think that's what's going on, at least not what's, not what's going on in our text. To be meek actually takes a lot of courage. To be meek is to throw oneself onto God and entirely trust him with the outcomes of a situation. And if you remember in Matthew chapter 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, it says that it's the meek that will inherit the land. And that's exactly what we're going to see in the story of Abraham. As he rolls his rights onto God, lets go of his need to defend himself, God ends up giving him the whole thing anyways. God blesses him with more than he ever could have collected if he were to just try to grab everything and fight for his rights. Uh, that, that even the land that Lot would take from him in this moment and go and inhabit, it all will, will belong to Abraham and his descendants. But as he takes on an attitude of meekness and gentleness, as he prefers Lot and what's best for him, he lets go of his rights and he is blessed. He lets go of his rights. We also see Abraham letting go of his need for the best. I think this one hits so close to home in a culture like ours because we can all identify with this desire for the best, can't we? Or at least I know I can. I love having the nicest toys and tech. I, I really like nice stuff. And that's not necessarily all bad. It's not bad to have nice things, but stuff can so easily get a hold of our hearts. I can get so obsessed with my need for what's new and, and, and how this thing is going to make my life so much better. It can take over my thoughts. It can take over my imagination. I can turn stuff into this sort of idol. But what we see Abraham do is he actually goes against common sense. He goes against the natural desire to have what's good and what's best, and he settles for less than, less than what's good. See, the land that Abraham got out of that deal with Lot even without the demands of Lot's herds and cattle fighting for the land, the piece of land that Abraham got, it would only sustain him and his men and his animals for, I don't know, maybe a few more years, maybe a decade at most. But the land he got, it was, it was dry and it was desert-like and it was, it was pretty barren. But I wonder, in making the decision that he made to take the lesser of the two options, I wonder, like, did Abraham realize the dangers of having the best? Did he realize that, that oftentimes the best is never good enough? That there's always something that's better around the corner? That the appetite for best can never be quenched? See, Abraham had, had experienced the best in the past. 
And maybe he realized that it actually wasn't everything that it was chalked up to be. Verse 2 says, Abraham became very wealthy in livestock and in silver and in gold. And a big reason that Abraham had gotten so wealthy was because back in chapter 12, he gave his wife to Pharaoh, pretending it was his sister. It was a complete mess, a disaster. But in that exchange of his wife to Pharaoh, Pharaoh gave him all sorts of, of, of animals and wealth and livestock. And, and, uh, and, and so, so Pharaoh had given him all these things, sheep and cattle and donkey and servants and camels. Abraham had compromised his values and he received such great reward for it. And I can't help but wonder if as Abraham sat there that night after giving his wife to Pharaoh and receiving all of this great wealth, probably being one of the wealthiest men in the ancient world, but having given up his greatest treasure, his wife, to get it, what would that have felt like in that moment? As he looked at all he had, more than he ever could have imagined owning for himself, but was he happy? Was it worth it? Canadian actor Jim Carrey, I've shared this quote before, but I think it's so good. He said, I wish that everyone could be rich and famous and have everything they ever dreamed of so they would know that it's not the answer. And so maybe, and I'm speculating here, but maybe Abraham willingly took the lesser of the two options. Maybe he thought to himself, no, I've done this before. I've taken the road of more and of better, and I've had all the things that money can buy, and I almost lost my soul in the midst of it. Maybe he thought to himself, I'm going to take a different road this time. See, when our eyes are so fixated on having the best, it can so easily lead us to compromise our own values in order to get it. We can justify the means because of our desired ends. Well, that's just what it takes to build a business in this day and age. Well, that's just what it takes to, to live the kind of life that I want to have, to, to build this kind of life for my family. We can compromise our values in order to achieve the life that we want. And that's exactly what we see Lot do in this story. Like in some ways, Lot's decision to inhabit Sodom and Gomorrah, it's, it's a really practical and logical one. Like choose the best option that's available. Makes sense. But in another sense, his decision is actually really, really troubling. You know, when I was in Israel last fall, I had the opportunity to stand in the exact spot where scholars believe this conversation would have happened between Lot and Abraham. And as I stood in that spot, I was able to look into the distance where they believe it was just green and lush and beautiful. A little further down from that was the cities known as Sodom and Gomorrah. And so as they're standing in that spot, I can only imagine that, that he's looking at the beauty, the, the green, the lushness, and then looking at the city and, and the vibrancy. Maybe there was a nightlife. Maybe he could even hear the music of the parties taking place. That's this, the sexiness of that city. And he decided, that's where I want to go. Verse 12 says, Lot settled among the city of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. It says, now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. So Lot chooses his piece of land, and, and first he pitches his tent outside the gates of Sodom. But as we're going to see as this story unfolds over the coming weeks, Sodom continues to lure him in, closer and closer to the center of the vortex. And it promises this good life to Lot. It promises power and happiness and wealth and prestige, and eventually Lot would become this active part of the city of Sodom, a place that scripture describes as this, this place of tremendous injustice where the rich and powerful prey on the weak, 
where the poor are treated with contempt and where they're even used as slaves. And as Lot moves into the city and begins to contribute, begins to benefit from this culture and the unjust systems and all the rest of it, there comes a point where he probably can't even really raise his voice against the injustice because it's going to jeopardize his quality of life that he's become so accustomed to, the fancy parties and the nice home and the slave labor and the injustice that was making him rich. I don't think that Locke took into account the power that wealth and money and the good life has to reduce our moral, mental, and spiritual vitality. When we get so obsessed with, with more and better and best, we can compromise our values in order to get that, whatever it is. Greed has, has this, this ability to impair our vision. And this is why generosity is so important in the life of a Christian. Because generosity is one of the greatest acts of resistance in the midst of a culture like Sodom, in, in the midst of a culture like ours. Generosity is this act of defiance against greed, against the per- persuasive pull of bigger and better and best. And, there, and there's so many different reasons to be generous. Many of us give out of a desire to help the people that are in need around us. Or to, or to contribute meaningfully to someone else's life. Maybe you give to our church because you feel so aligned with the mission and vision and, and what God's doing here locally and around the world. And that's great. Those are amazing reasons to give and to be generous. But we also give because it breaks us loose from the idol of more. Every single week as we give, it's this opportunity for us to say to our money, you are not my security. You are not my value. And it's this opportunity to say to the living God, week after week, I place my trust in you. Dallas Willard, who's an incredible teacher and uh, an author in the area of spiritual formation, he taught that Christians, that as Christians, we should, we should actually, as much as possible, give away the best of what we have. That we shouldn't give away our old stuff or the stuff that's worn out and used, but that we should regularly go through our closets and our drawers and our garages and find those treasures that we hold so near and dear to our hearts and wherever possible, give them away so that others can have the best. Yes, that's part of it, but also so that our souls don't rot under the idol of wealth and the accumulation of possessions. Abraham lets go of his need for the best. Okay, lastly, we see Abraham letting go of all his should-haves. I can only imagine the should-haves that would have been running through Abraham's mind as he was experiencing the conflict with Lot. Maybe it was like, I I should have left Lot at home. I should have listened to God. I, I should have done all of these things differently. Man, I don't know about you, but I can totally relate. It is so easy to dwell in the should-haves. The things I I wish that I did differently, if I could relive that situation or if I could relive that conversation, that moment in time, I I should have phrased that differently or or I should have led that meeting differently or I, I should have been more gentle or whatever the case might be. But we don't see Abraham dwelling on the should haves. What we see Abraham do is he confesses his sin. He sets up this altar, he worships God and then he lets God have all of his should haves. And that is such an important aspect of faith, giving God our mistakes, giving God all of our shortcomings, all the things that we should have done. And not only things that we've done, but things that have been done to us. See, Lot should have given Abraham first pick. Lot choosing first, it would have been so incredibly disrespectful in the ancient culture. He shouldn't have done that, but he did. And this is one of the moments where we see the 
depth of Abraham's faith. He lets go of all of the should-haves, and he just throws it on God. I wonder how many times we resist swimming in the ocean of God's grace, experiencing the peace and joy that comes from him because we're, our minds are just so full of should-haves. We haven't jumped in and experienced God's amazing grace because we're still standing on the edge of the pool or on the edge of the boat saying we should have or we shouldn't have or, or he should have or she shouldn't have done that. But we have to let go. You know, yes, that painful event that you went through should not have happened to you. But it did. You have to let it go. Yes, that person shouldn't have said or done those things to you, but they did. You have to let it go. Maybe, yes, you should have been wiser in that business deal, but you didn't know what you didn't know, and, 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 you, and you weren't. Let it go. We have to learn to let it go and throw all of it on the depths of God's healing grace. See, it's after Abraham lets go of all of these things that he's been holding onto that God reiterates his promise to Abraham. In the close of our text, God, God restates to Abraham. He says, look at the, the north, look at the south, the east, the west. All of it will belong to your seed. And I think that illustrates the, the point that Jesus will make many, many years later in Mark chapter 10 when he says, no one who has left their home or brother, or sister, or mother, or father, or children, or fields for me in the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in the present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with persecution, and in the age to come, eternal life. And then Jesus says, but those who are first will be last, and the last will be first. In other words, we gain by letting go. We gain by releasing what's in our hands and just surrendering it all to God. But how do we do that? Like, how was Abraham actually able to let go of his rights? How was he able to let go of his need for the best and his should-haves and all the rest of it? Because it seems a lot easier said than done, if we're honest. I think the key to Abraham's faith in this situation is where he set his eyes. Sounds kind of funny, but did you notice all the references to eyes that are through our text, the lifting up of eyes? It looks like that the author of Genesis is contrasting Abraham's vision with Lot's vision. And so first, look with me real quick at Lot's vision. In verse 10, it says, Lot lifted up his eyes and saw the valley of the Jordan. I think it's important to note that this phrase, the lifting up of eyes, it shows up several different times in Scripture. Now, it means a lot more than just lifting your eyes in a physical sense and looking up. We see this phrase show up in the Psalms and even again in John. And whenever it's used, it's usually referring to inner vision. It's referring to, 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 to what we see as we fix our attention on things. And so the author of Genesis is saying that Lot made his decision to take the land that he did because of his eyes and his mind. It was so filled with the beauty and the wonder of Sodom and Gomorrah. It looked so appealing to him, all that it could offer, everything. It was everything that he'd ever dreamed of, wealth and prosperity and the nightlife and fun. And the fields were so green and lush. Think of all that he could do with those. But as we'll see later on in this story, Sodom and Gomorrah would promise the good life, but would bring about the absolute worst in Lot, would wreak havoc on his family and would ultimately lead to their destruction. Lot followed his eyes. And so did Abraham. It's just that Abraham's eyes were fixed in a different direction. Abraham had this entirely different vision of reality. What do I mean? 
Well, Genesis 13, it begins and it ends with an altar. In verse 4, Abraham makes an altar to the Lord. And then again in verse 18, Abraham sets up his tent and makes another altar to the Lord. It begins and it ends with an altar. And I think that shows us the direction of Abraham's gaze. And I want to be really, really um, intentional here. I, I don't want to turn Abraham into a hero because he's just a human like you and I. And in, in the previous chapter, in chapter 12, he made a, a ton of mistakes. And there is a lot more mistakes coming in the chapters to come. But in this moment, in this section of the story, Abraham's eyes have shifted off of his wealth and the things that he can gain. His eyes have shifted off the things that the world has to offer and are focused entirely on the God of the universe, trusting in him. So much so that God actually has to remind him to, to, to look with his eyes at all the, the land that's around him. In the book of Hebrews, we read that Abraham was able to let go in that moment because he was looking forward to the city of God. He was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. He wasn't judging his situation by physical eyes. He wasn't judging by, by what the, 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 the land around him looked like or the scenario based on human wisdom or, or human understanding. He was fixated on God, trusting in God, which enabled him to see with eyes of faith, knowing that God's plans for him were good. You know, the direction of our eyes makes all the difference. And that's why the, the author of Hebrews will go on and tell us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith who for the joy set before him endured the cross. The absolute key to understanding our, our, this text is vision. What has your attention? As you look at your life and the situations in front of you, the challenges, as you, looked at, as you look at the obstacles that are in front of you, as you make decisions about what your life is gonna, what are you gonna do with your life? Who are you gonna marry? Where, where are you gonna go? How are you gonna handle this given situation in front of you? What do you see? Do you see only what is, or do you see what could be, what God could do? Sometimes in order to see the God potential in a situation, it requires us to let go of things that are clouding our vision. Maybe it's letting go of our rights. Maybe it's letting go of our need for the best. Maybe it's letting go of all the different things that we should have or shouldn't have done or the things that shouldn't have been done to us. Maybe it's one of those things. Maybe it's something else. But as we let go, as we throw ourselves on God, trusting in him, we, we can experience his peace. Receive the blessing of life with him. We gain by letting go. We gain life and life to the fullest. And it's not found in Sodom. It's not found in anything that the world has to offer. It's found in relationship with God. It's found in Jesus. In Mark 16, 25, Jesus will say it clearly. He says that anyone who wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. In other words, when you hold on to your life, when you try to do this thing by yourself, when you grasp whatever you can get, you're, probably, you're gonna lose it. But if you let go of control, if you entrust yourself to God who loves you and who cares for you, who died for you on a cross to save you, you will find life. You'll find life to the fullest. So as we move towards the close of our time together, 
John and, and the team are gonna lead us in response. And for the first couple moments before we sing together, I just wanna sit and I wanna ask you to ponder this question. What am I holding on to? What do I need to let go of in order to experience the life that Jesus has on offer? What are those things in my world that might be clouding my vision? And then as we respond and worship together now, I wanna encourage you to release those things to him. Maybe it's God, I surrender my rights. Maybe it's God, I surrender control of my life. I surrender my, my addiction to the best. I desire to be popular. My sense of, of myself as my sole provider. Whatever it might be, lay those things at the foot of the cross. Exchange your heavy burden, your yoke, for his yoke that is easy and his burden that is light. We gain when we let go. So let's just take a few moments. John will play piano quietly and just take a couple minutes to ask that, to ponder that question. Is there something in my life that I need to let go? Is there something that's clouding my vision and robbing me from seeing the potential that God sees? I surrender those things to him. Thanks for listening to this message. If you've been listening to our sermons, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca to find out more about getting involved in the life and mission of CA Church.